Welcome to the Keelan Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Vince McKee. Today's guest, Scott Levy, better known as Raven, one of the true legends of the sport. As you've seen over the last couple months, we've had one famous wrestling legend on after another, and it has been a blast along the way. Sit back, put your feet up, and grab something cold to drink. Without any further ado, here he is, Raven. On the hotline now is Scott Levy. You guys know him as Raven. Uh, tremendous, tremendous career on, I mean, multiple, uh, promotions and we are very honored to have him on the show today. Uh, Raven, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. The pleasure is all ours. Um, just want to get started right away with you here. After a good singles run, you know, both in global and ironically enough, I had talked with uh, Scott Hudson a few weeks ago about your young career and and he could see right away you were going to be, you know, pretty incredible in the business. And then WCW as Scotty Flamingo. You know, it kind of caught some of us by surprise when you arrived in the WWF under, you know, a completely different name, Johnny Polo, and also as a manager. Just wondering, how did all that come about? Um, basically, uh, I went into WCW and Dusty had big plans for me, but Watts came in and he didn't like me. And so he gave me the, the boot and I went back to Memphis to work for Jared and Lawler. And then uh, WWE was interested, WWF at the time was interested. And, uh, but they only wanted me as a manager because I was a small, at that time I was 220. I'm six foot 245 now, but I was six foot 220 then. And at that time, that was a really small guy in the business. And, uh, you know, everybody was at least 245, 250. And, uh, I mean, now I'd be, you know, you know, normal, I, well, I'd be more than normal sized guy. You know what I mean? I'd probably be bigger than most guys that work now. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, but anyway, but at the time, 220 was small. Um, and, uh, and so they only wanted me as a manager. But I figured, you know, they're offering me a lot of money and, uh, and I can hopefully parlay it into a, you know, back into the wrestling ring. Yeah, I mean, and the character itself to me was very unique, uh, very funny. I mean, I remember listening to you on WC, or WCW, excuse me, WWF radio at the time. A uh, few fans know about that nowadays, but when you guys just do the uh, WWF radio, I thought you were quite entertaining, quite honestly. So, yeah, that, uh, that was, I made that into a pure comedy show. You know, Vince wanted it to discuss angles and stuff, and uh, you know, and have wrestlers come on in character. But nobody wanted to hear that. I mean, everybody knew wrestling was predetermined. You know, the outcome was predetermined, so nobody wanted to hear him talking in character on a radio show. So uh, once Vince stopped doing it, because you know. He didn't want to ruin his Saturday nights after the first couple episodes. Um, I just made it into a, me and Stan just made it into a comedy show, more, more or less. Well, yeah, I mean, and, you know, it's not a question or anything, but I'll throw it out there for you. I thought it was really unique simply because you guys had a show, uh, WrestleMania weekend or WrestleMania 10, and, the, you know, it was, you know, predict who you think is going to win. Is it going to be Luger, Yokozuna, or Bret Hart? I'll never forget this. You as a hill, okay, you're a hill. You went on the record that night, and you said Bret Hart's going to win. Bret Hart's going to, you know, come out of WrestleMania 10 with the title. And that struck me as crazy. So I was like, wow, I'm like, here's this guy who's supposed to be this hated Hill manager, just pick, you know, the most beloved man in the company to win. And I thought that was unique. I thought that was great, quite frankly, because I was like, okay, that now he's showing the, the fans out there a little bit of respect by coming out of character for a second and just saying how you honestly felt. I thought that was pretty unique. Yeah, um, yeah it's a fine line to walk because... If you, if you, if you become likable, then you're no longer a heel. You know, it's like, it's why I, my, my theory is, um, heels shouldn't do comedy. Um, because then they become likable. And then once you become likable, it's, you're inevitably going to lose, you know, your heat and you're going to end up having to turn baby face. Um, you know, or it's a difference. Like, like Jim Cornette was always hilarious. I always liked him. I never, he never had any heat with me because he was so funny. I mean, as a character when I was a fan, but Paul Lee was funny, but in a mean way, yeah. like he was mean spirited. So Paul Lee to me as a fan was, I, I thought he was a dick, you know what I mean? And then the fan, uh, which turned out he was a great guy and we got along great, you know, but that's a whole other story. But the, um, the, uh, but to me, that's why, you know, when you're working on top, it's that's that's why. Okay, that's also why I had Stevie and the Meanie 
do anything funny I wanted done because like, I still love doing having funny stuff happen, but Raven couldn't do it, but the Stevie Namini could, which eventually it turned to babyface. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, and even that, you know, and um, I'll get back to the questions here in a second, but I'll throw this out there too, for all the fans. Look at Jericho in, in 98 in WCW I mean, he's coming out. He's supposed to be a hill, a rule breaker. He's making everybody laugh. He's coming out with the list of 100, you know, whatever it was, 1,005 moves, one more than Dean Malenko. And just, yeah. you know, it, and it ended up getting him over as a face. They did it again in WWF. He comes in as a hill, makes people laugh. So, yeah, I mean, I, I totally get it. And I, I wanted to ask you this, too, you know, kind of my second question here of your uh, initial WWF run. You were limited to managing the Quebecers and a little bit early on there with Adam Baum. So my question is this, were there any wrestlers that you pitched Vince or the office or anybody at all that you wanted to manage, you, you pitched to them, who you never got the chance? You know, I never thought about it, but I never even pitched managing anybody because it's not what I wanted to do in it to begin with. <laughs> and also, I was also an associate producer of Raw at the time. They, they also put me in, they moved me to Stanford and uh, had me be an associate producer of Raw. And so... I wasn't even on the road that much as a manager, just TVs mostly and a few house shows that were in, you know, driving distance. So my final WWF question for you is this, and I'm, I'm willing to bet, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm willing to bet I might be the first radio host to ask you this question. You did some commentary work with Gorilla Monsoon for Coliseum Home Video. Actually, own of, I think it's like uh, body slams, bloopers, and bleeps or something like that. How special was he to work with? How much of a joy was he, and what was he really like? He's a great guy. I mean, just really nice. Just a just a just a, a gentleman. You know, like a classy guy, a classy older guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so moving into ECW, then you you know you got the WCW, the GWF as a wrestler. You go in as a manager, and now here we go. This to me. This is one of the greatest characters in, in, in modern wrestling history, by far, the Raven character. It's one of the most creative and intelligent characters of all time. When you go back and listen to the promos, it's unbelievable. This is during a time, oh, you're very welcome. This is during a time, you know, where there were there was wrestling clowns, wrestling garbage men, wrestling plumbers, just ridiculousness. And you come in with this, I don't even want to call it a gimmick, so I'm going to say character. You come in with it. What was what was the creative genius behind it? What inspired you to do it? And how much creative freedom did you have? I had a lot of creative freedom. Um, I came up with the character, the whole... Uh, the, the The only help I had was, was DDP suggested that I no longer be a chicken shit character anymore. And because uh, I was getting ready to leave WWE and he's like, He's like, he goes, um, you got to stop being a chicken shit heel. And I was like, but I like being a chicken shit heel. There aren't any, and it's effective. He's like, yeah, but there's no money in it. Nobody, no, no bookers are, are hiring them. So you got to be a tough guy. I'm like, eh, if I got to be a tough guy, I'll be a tough guy. And then, um, and he suggested, he goes, he goes, you know, you got long hair, you got tattoos, you wear a leather jacket. He goes, you ought to go. He didn't say all that, but basically he said, I reminded him of the red hot chili peppers in Point Break. And that, that pointed me in a direction to go alternative, you know, like than what I'd been doing. And then from there, I just came up with the whole character, Lock, Stock, and Barrel, um, and put it all together. And interestingly, I came up with the, the outfit, the name, uh, the look and the name all within like a, like a three-minute burst of inspiration. I was, um, I was at the house at, at uh, my apartment, and... Um, and I go, oh, let's see, what am I going to wear? I go, so I know, I knew, I knew what I wanted to be, but I had to figure out what to wear. So I put on some, uh, basically, I put on ripped up jean shorts. Knew that was it. That's what I wore anyway. Uh, I put a wrestling sole on my Doc Martin, so that's not going to change anything. Uh, leather jacket I wore anyway. But basically, I just uh, thought I, the the big, uh, the big reveal was that uh, to myself was that I was like, if I'm going to wear a ring jacket, I got to wear a leather jacket. No, no, I'm sorry. First, I go, I need some flannel involved because flannel was big at the time. And I was like, so I put, I cut off the sleeves of a flannel shirt to wrestle in. I was like, nah, that's not it. So I just tied the flannel around my waist. I was like, ah, that's perfect. And then um, this is all like a, through like in three to five minutes. And then I go, then I go, I need a, ja a ring jacket, my leather jacket. Of course, I'm going to wear that. But I always believed in having lots of ring jackets. I always had like, you know, 10 or 12 of them. And so I was like, um, 
I can't change my ring jacket, so I need to have something that changes every time because Raven wouldn't have more than one jacket because that, that would just wouldn't fit his personality. And um, which was really the which was really me. Um, and uh, and so I was like, uh, let's see, or a concert shirt. I cut the sleeves off, and I figured I had big arms, no chest, a oh, thick waist, and uh, and that it hit all my weaknesses and accentuated my positives. So I was like, so I'll wear a concert shirt. And that way I'll have a different, a different variety every week. So, you know, there's always something different about the outfit. But uh, the ring jacket will stay the same, being the exception that proves the rule that you should have multiple ring jackets. And then I go, I need a name. And I was like, who, what, 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 what's an influence? And I thought of the crow and the guy's name was Eric Draven. I go, Draven, Raven, quote the Raven, nevermore. All right, I got all that. So now I had my outfit and my, and my, and my ring name and my catchphrase all like in under five minutes. So then it was just a matter of putting together the material. And um, and so I started writing the material. But that was that it took me a little while to get to really understand what I what I created. And interestingly, almost Paulie almost knew it better, figured saw what I was heading for more than I did at first. And he probably knew the character better than I did after a couple months, you know, for the first couple months until I really accepted that what I was doing was just a a. Um, an enhanced version of the of what the inside turmoil in my own brain. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, as a writer myself, and I'm not here to, to put myself over, I assure you, but as a writer, I can tell you, I mean, with multiple published books, sometimes you have that creative burst. You know, it, it doesn't come easy. Sometimes on a long drive or you might be laying in bed. But, yeah, when it hits you, you don't want to stop. I mean, and it, it just burns. Also, but sometimes you don't even realize what you're writing until you get deeper into it, and then you realize you were writing something completely different than what you originally planned. If that's not, if uh, I may say so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and like you know, for me personally, as a sports writer, and this is just I'm coming way off the the script here. As a sports writer, you know, everything for me is factual, factual, factual. But you have to find a way to make it entertaining. You have to find a way to tell it a little bit differently than the last person told it because. You might have 10 reporters at one game. Someone's only going to read one story out of those 10. So yours has to be unique. I completely get that. That's like a wrestling promo. Every promo is basically, I'm going to kick your ass. It's how originally, can how different and original and creatively can you say it from somebody else? And to me, if the guy in the front row could come up with something just as creative, it's not very good. So I prided myself on writing, on writing promos that were unique, were intelligent, we're creative, but, but we're basically still saying, I'm just going to kick your ass, but also revealing, revealing portions of my character's psyche. And, and at the same time, so that you could understand him and see him as a three dimensional being, as opposed to a two dimensional cookie cutter, which is what most wrestlers are. Yeah. And nowadays, does it irritate you knowing that, you know, so much of it is scripted, these promos that these guys don't even get a chance. It's, they got to memorize a script. I mean, you were one. Of, I mean, dude, you were one of the originals. You know, to to go out there and just spout greatness. How I mean, I, I got. I have to believe that gets under your skin, maybe just a little bit, knowing that these guys are being spoon fed. Well, you know, it, it did for a while because I hated the people. Because back in the day, wrestlers, you you if you couldn't come up with your own promo, you weren't a good promo person. You didn't have any help. You know, and which is so in many ways, it's a positive. Because it helps the younger guys or the guys that don't have a voice, it helps them find their voice. But in, and it's a huge negative because original people aren't going to get to be the original characters they are. Like The Rock wouldn't get a chance to be that original today. If Your Rock wasn't third generation, he never would have got the opportunity to create to to take the time that it took to develop and become the character that he became. You know, because they would have been writing for him. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, kind of staying put here for a second with ECW, second question on ECW. How much pride did you take in being the champion for the first ever pay-per-view that they ever had in the company and then going against a living legend like Terry Funk? I preface that with this. This was at a time in ECW where Taz was seen as an ultimate badass. You had Sabu as the ultimate, you know, high-flyer, dare-defying guy. Yeah, I mean, you had Shane Douglas as the mouthpiece. He had so many other things going on, yet... Because of what you were able to do with Tommy Dreamer, and so many fans were so invested in hating you at this point, they put you in the main event with Terry Funk at the, easily the biggest show in company history. 
you know, as a, as a, you know, on a personal level, how did it make you feel? And what are some of your memories of that first pay-per-view? A lot of pride, but the only reason I wasn't on the poster was because Taz made the poster. So Taz put Taz on the poster. <laughs> <laughs> he put him and Sabu on the poster. I love Taz, but you know, but he's still, he, he, I mean, the poster should have been about, the poster should have been about Terry Funk's quest to win the title is what it should have been. That should have been the poster because that was the biggest draw. And then Sabu and Taz were the second biggest draw, but Taz made the poster. So he put the poster the way he did it, but that's all right. Um, you know, it, it, that kind of thing always bothered me, but ultimately really didn't like, it just made me laugh. You know what I mean? Like I'd get, I'd get irritated in the sense that, you know, I wasn't receiving what I, my due respect, but at the same time, I just thought it was funny, you know, but, uh, the, um, yeah, but but the, and the, but the thing that reminded I think of most when I think of the uh, of the uh, the pay per view was that that Paulie was shitting bricks all all of a sudden because they just uh, the three way dance Funk uh, Stevie and Sammy was going long and he kept telling me to go out there now and just go I go no I got to wait for my spot and um, and uh, so he kept hey, Paul was like but you got to go now we're not gonna have enough time for your thing I go don't worry we'll have time we'll be fine. And Paulie was really freaking out because everything was, you know, was was on the line on this pay-per-view, you know, and making sure the finish got in on time and all that. And then finally they, uh, after going long, they finally hit their spot and then I went out there. And then, uh, and so the best part is the best part of the whole story of the whole pay-per-view is, so my roommate was a doctor, a foot surgeon, okay. and uh, and they made him the company doctor because they needed a doctor on standby. So they always had a doctor. So he was, he just, he Paulie paid him to come be a doctor at the show. And he, he liked coming anyway because he liked wrestling and he's my roommate. So he's got to do a spot where he comes in to check funk and during the thing. And he, Paulie's going, go now, go now. He's like, relax, Paulie, relax. <laughs> and, you know, like he's totally calm. Like he just for some reason, he it just didn't didn't phase him well because he worked in he was an ER doctor. So he didn't didn't phase him. And so Paulie's like, you got to go. He's like, Paulie, it's not my spot yet, which is just ridiculous <laughs> hearing a non-wrestler goes, it's not my spot yet. And then finally, um, the uh, Paulie says, oh, you got to go. He's like, Paulie, relax. I save lives. He's a foot surgeon. What lives does he save? <laughs> Isn't that the greatest? <laughs> That's really good. I would never knew. It's funny because a lot of that is shown, not the doctor part, but a lot of it is shown on, uh, I think it's called Beyond the Mat, really good documentary that they put out. And you, it, there is a like a five-second clip of uh, Paul Heyman freaking out and you telling them to calm down. You're like, they're going now. They're going now, Paulie. It, it's just, it, it's classic. I didn't even know that was in there. Oh, you got to go back and watch it. It's definitely in there. So looking looking back at ECW, looking back at all of it, your first run and, and your abbreviated second run there, um, and this is a tough question. You know, this, this is a tough one, but I'm going to ask it. You know, it, we're in a day and age now where everything's so PG. Everything is so damn watered down. But back then, you guys had that creative freedom, and you were able to not, I don't want to say do anything you wanted to do, but pretty close. Is there anything you ever did in ECW, storyline-wise or whatever, that you regret? No, I don't think so. I mean, the um, there's a lot of stuff I regretted saying in, the, in, you know, privately and publicly, but, you know, because I always ran my mouth, I always... I always had a, even if I wasn't, I still had to prove I was the smartest guy in the room and, and cause I was so insecure. Like my whole life I was completely insecure and which nobody knew because I was so egotistical because of my insecurity, but people just saw the, egot the egotism and didn't realize it hit insecurity. And, uh, so I always had to prove I was the smartest guy in the room and which irritated everybody to no end. And, uh, and, and I probably wasn't the smartest guy in the room in most, in most cases, but you know, but I thought I was, but, um, so yeah, so there's a lot I regret saying and stuff, but in the ring, um, I don't think there's really anything, you know, other than, you know, I mean, other than minor stuff that I can't even think of off the top of my head, you know, but no, I mean, you know, even the, even the, the crucifixion angle in ECW, you know, I mean, it was a good angle. It just did because of who was there and whatever circumstances um you know it didn't play well it didn't play right but it played right to the audience though you know i was in the ring i knew i mean it was the right kind of reaction but whatever yeah it just happened to be the one night kurt angle was sitting in the front row exactly oh, yeah, i think he was in the back i think he was in the back yeah. but yeah same no yeah yeah that's what they call the you know 
Shit happens. I guess the best way you could put it. So, I mean, as a as a Christian and a Catholic myself, I'm raised, and you know, kids are baptized and the whole deal. I mean, I'm smart enough to realize that wrestling is scripted. It's not fake. I'll never call it fake in a million years because it's not fake. But it is scripted. Certain things are scripted, and you have to be intelligent enough again to be able to watch it and understand. Like, okay, this guy's not really getting crucified. Yeah. Well, not only that, but. But they thought it was a it was a it was a knock on religion, but it had nothing to do with religion. I was using the iconography of of the visual of Sandman. You know, me. I'm, I always thought I was. That's why I put my arms in a crucifix pose because I, I always said that I was a martyr for society's dysfunction, and I wanted to make Sandman feel my pain, so I put him in the same position, and then I just used to put him on an actual cross to make my to make the imprint even more. But it was. It had nothing to do with religion other than that was the that's the analogy I was using, but it wasn't a knock on religion in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, and I'll say this too before I get to the WCW portion of this interview, that it didn't stop Kurt Angle or anybody else from, from signing with the WWE or WWF at the time a year later when The Undertaker crucified Stone Cold Steve Austin. So it just to me it seems like anything ECW ever did was under a spotlight, it was under um, a magnifying glass, I should say. That's all. I mean, as a fan, I don't, I don't think you guys got a fair shake. If Kurt wouldn't have been there, and Kurt had never been to a wrestling show before, I mean, I can understand his reaction. You know, and they were trying to get him to come in and be a commentator or wrestle. And he, he had nothing, wanted nothing to do with wrestling, but and he knew nothing about it. So, I mean, I can see what, why he thought that. But if Kurt wouldn't have been there, it never would have, there would have never been any big to do about it. Because the audience reacted the perfect way. It was stunned silence. It yeah. was like... Uh, and here's the thing too, is even if it was completely in bad taste, which it wasn't, but let's say it was when you're the rebel promotion, you don't apologize. You just, you just move on, you know, because as the, as the rebels, the rebels don't apologize. They never, you know, they may, if they cross the line and they just don't, they try not to cross it again, but you don't go out and apologize. Cause that's just not the, that's just not what revolutionaries do, you know, and we were a revolution in the sport. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, speaking of apologizing, <laughs> you go on to WCW. You still there? All right, we hope everybody out there is driving safe in this storm. Um, back here with uh, Scott Levy. You guys know him as Raven. So, uh, you know, moving on to WCW. And see, to me, it's very unique because they, they, they took the ECW character and they tweaked it a little bit, but not, not too much, you know, in, in, in certain ways. And we'll get to that in a second. So, you know, did Eric Bischoff and the Bookers allow you to choose who was going to be in your flock and who was overall, you know, what was the overall thought process of all that? No, I didn't get to pick my flock other than Sick Boy. And I wanted to pick all, all uh, unknown guys, all new guys, because I didn't want to have a bunch of retreads. You know what I mean? I didn't want to have a bunch of guys where they go, oh, they just recycle on him. You know, to me, if you're going to recycle a guy, take him off TV for a year, pay him to sit at home. And then recycle, like, you know, like, to totally reinvent him, the guy. You know what I mean? Don't just, you know, put him in a Raven. Like, you know, for this, don't just take, like, a Van Hammer and put him in a Raven wear. And then, um, you know, and then uh, put him in the flock. Because it's just, it's Van Hammer in the flock. You know what I mean? As, uh, you know, they should have done something different. Like, I, I wanted to be really a whole bunch of all guys that just showed up out of nowhere that nobody ever heard of. And yet had talent, you know, which is why I went to the power plant and found Sick Boy. At least I got to pick him. And uh, but you know, you, you you make do. I mean, you know, like with Riggs, at least we blinded one eye and put a eye patch on him, so at least he looked different. You know, um, Kidman uh, wasn't really known yet, so that was fine. Uh, plus, he's a hell of a fucking talent. Um, you know, so it all. I mean, and Saturn, I did one, but you know, but other than Saturn. You know, but I mean, but then I, they gave me Van Hammer, they gave me Ron Reese, you know, which is fine. I mean, but it's not who I wanted, but they worked out okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, no doubt about it. And, you know, was it irritating to you at all going into Starcade that year? You're, you're there, you were at the company about four months. You go into Starcade, they bill you to, to take on Chris Benoit, and then they pull you. I mean, what was that about, and was that frustrating, or did you know, like, weeks ahead of time you weren't going to be wrestling at that pay-per-view? I think that's, was that when I was, uh, I had pancreatitis? Oh, I don't know. I mean, you kept sending in uh, Saturn instead. I, I didn't know you were sick. Yeah, no, I think that's when I had pancreatitis. 
that's when I quit drinking because uh, the alcohol, my alcoholism had given me pancreatitis, which is probably one of the two single most painful things you can get. That's what they say. And, and you know, that's up there with gout, which I also got from drinking. Um, and, uh, but yeah, pancreatitis is ungodly. I couldn't eat. I had to lay in a hospital bed for eight days without any food or water passing my lips because it would just inflame the pancreas. So they basically just stuck me with a bare minimal IV and uh, no food. And, and the pain was excruciating. And like an idiot, I didn't want to tell them that I had a drug problem. So, so I was afraid they wouldn't give me any medication. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize was when you have a drug, when you are a drug addict, they give you more medication because it takes more medication to keep you out of pain. But I was in, and I was in so much pain that I could have had more medication to keep me comfortable, but I didn't want to tell them I was an addict because I thought they wouldn't give me any medication. So I totally screwed myself, suffered immensely. Well, I had no idea. Absolutely no idea. Um, same, you know, same night though of, uh, of Star K 97. And, uh, if, you know, if, if the feed here goes out again, I'll just call you right back, but should be okay. I hope. Anyways, Star K97 here. That night is the whole thing. They've built around Sting versus Hogan for a year and a half. It comes off extremely flat. Uh, where Hogan beats him, they, they say there's a fast count. There's not. Then Sting comes back and beats him with Bret Hart. The entire thing was, was, was a debacle. You know, you're in the back. You're seeing how all this rolls out. You know, number one, was there a lot of ego involved? And is that why that, that finish got so badly screwed up? And number two, like seeing how they could screw up such a good angle for so long. Did that give you like an immediate like sense of fear working for them? Okay, when was this? In, uh, I, I don't know. Oh, it's Star K ninety seven. So Star K ninety seven. You you were with the company for four months. It was when you were supposed to fight Benoit, but you had the pancreatitis. Probably still off. Yeah, I was probably still at home. Okay, it was just it was just a total mess. What were your memories of working with Chris Benoit, and were you just kind of shocked that you know later on everything that went down with him? Because you guys had unbelievable chemistry in the ring. Yeah, we um, yeah, we worked well together. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I was shocked, but I wasn't, but I wasn't, but if you told me that that was going to happen, I'd be like, hmm, yeah, like I mean, um. Like I'm, I'm le- like I, I don't want to say I'm, that I'm not shocked because of course everybody's shocked. But if I if there was somebody that that might happen that that might occur or that that might do something of that nature, like I wasn't in high, when it happened, I wasn't like oh my god I don't believe this. You know I was like okay I, I can see I didn't I wouldn't never expect it but I could see it happen. Like I mean I like I once I was told that that it happened. There was no, I didn't ever, I didn't ever question it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I didn't go, oh, there's no way this is a frame job or a conspiracy. You know, I was like, okay, yeah, he lost it. Um, and, uh, and it's sad no matter how you look at it, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, and, and trust me, I would not ask you that question unless you didn't, didn't work with him. And, you know, that's really the only reason I'm even bringing that up is because yeah. you had such a good program with him. Yeah, um, he was he was well and kind of tight to me, but I mean, you know, and he, he was his own guy. He was uh, he was like uh, he he struck me as he lived for the business. I mean, he was a nice guy. You know, I mean, I, there's nothing there's nothing I have negative to say. I don't have a negative thing to say about him. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh, I'm just trying to, but and but and I didn't know him well enough to try and explain it. But I just, but I did, but, but when it was, when it happened, I was like, okay, uh, that's fucked up, but that, uh, but I don't, I, I can believe it happened. Like, you know, it's not like I couldn't believe, but I don't know why I would think that, you know what I mean? Cause he was such a, he was a nice guy. He was always nice to me, you know? Yeah. I mean, you can't explain someone else's actions. You could just understand why Hey, you know, it, it doesn't, I trust me, I get it. And like you said, it's hard to put it into words, but I, I totally understand it. So, but transitioning from Benoit though. Because he was a you, you like, oh go ahead. It's like I thought. Okay, he probably took out his kid because he didn't want his kid to grow up with with his pair with his dad a murderer and a, and his mom dead. You know, so, you know, so that would that would I can see the psychology behind that. You know, and I, you know, I mean, I don't know what happened. Nobody knows what happened. You know, but yeah, it's such a weird thing. It is so weird. Yeah, you know what? Anything I'd say would be 
would be mis- would be misconstrued anyway. So I'll just leave it as just it's, it's weird, man. No, I agree. What's happening. Yeah, no, I, yeah, no problem at all. Um, yeah, no doubt about it. Basically, like I said, the only reason he, the only reason that even came up is that was supposed to be your opponent before all the the crazy shit went down. So moving past that though. You you know you, you moved into that feud with DDP right after that obviously a longtime friend someone you had known for a while you know so here's a question that I guess goes a little bit into the WCW maybe politics of things when you won the title for, for the United States title from DDP okay you had it for less than 24 hours and then they had you put Goldberg over before you even won that belt that night over DDP did you already know that it was going to be a one night reign and that the whole thing was to transition to Goldberg or did that shit happen overnight? No, I didn't. I didn't know, and I don't think that they knew that. I think they decided that the next. I mean, I'm gonna guess they decided that the next day, but I don't know. They could have already known. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure there was a lot of long term planning, but I mean, I'm. All I know is that that Bischoff, he let me write most of my own storylines, which was cool, which is really cool. So you know, so whatever. I mean, he's never been a fan of my character. At least that's what I've gathered from interviews that he's, people have told me he said, but. But uh, but that's uh, you know, everybody's got their own decision. Everybody's got their own taste, you know. Whatever. I got. I got. I don't have any problems with anybody anymore. You know, any any heat that I might have had, you know, that somebody might have had with me, I could care less at this point. You know, I'm 55. You know, I'm semi-retired. I'm living a comfortable, content, happy semi-retirement. I don't. I have no grudges. No no animosity. You know, and, and I was an asshole a lot. So. So I think it's it's you know so a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of negativity in my career was my own fault you know so which I've you know which I totally admit to now you know so from what uh, from what I recall you only wrestled Goldberg that one time what was the physical what was the physical impact with him like I mean is it is it a rough impact with him No no we had we had two matches actually the second one was really good too but I'd forgotten all about that until Shannon Moore told me about it. Like one day in TNA, he's like, it's like, man, you and Goldberg had two good matches together. I'm like, two? I thought I only wrestled them once. It's like, no, nah, you wrestled them on a Thunder. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, it was a good match too. Um, I- I'm really proud of the Goldberg match because because I had one of the th- Goldberg's had three good matches in his pre WWE. I don't know if he's had one in the WWE or not, so I can't say because I don't really watch it anymore. But prior to that, he'd had three good matches: one with me, one with DDP, and one with Steiner. Um, so I'm really proud of the fact that I was able to have the first and one of the only three good matches, you know, like really good matches with them, you know, you know, a lot has been uh, said and rumored about your sudden departure from WCW in August of 1999. What actually happened from what everybody says, you know, uh, they always say, okay, Eric Bischoff gave everybody a chance in 99, August of 99 to opt out of their contract. And then you were the only one with enough guts to stand up and actually do so. Is that really what happened? He called me out. He goes, uh, Raven, he goes, if you're not happy with the company, there's a door. I'm like, all right, see. And I got up and left. Wow. Well, I mean, and, yeah. and no one else even stood up. And then he said, anybody else want to, as, as I'm walking out of here, I'm saying, anybody else want to go? Um, and he directed it at a couple other guys that had got, you know, that had been burying the company in the, in the public, in public, which I never should have done anyway. I mean, you know, I, I, I followed along with what everybody else was doing, but, you know, if I was running a company, I wouldn't let people talk badly about it in public. You know, that's just, that's bad business, you know. So, but that was the thing he opened a meeting with was, uh, and uh, I was like, yeah. No, I said, all right, thank you. And then I walked out and uh, probably would have, probably was a stupid mistake in hindsight, you know, but who knows. Was Did you cross paths with him at all in your, in your first run at Scotty Flamingo? Um... Yeah, uh, not much. I mean, not in any particularly strong way. I, I think, I for some reason, I have this memory of somebody telling me or him telling me that he was really impressed with my uh, with my tryout match. Like, cause cause I knew so many tricks. Like, I knew all these old timer tricks about how to work, and uh, that people didn't know. You know, young guys didn't know. But I spent two years in Portland, you know, working with some talented individuals and learned a lot of secrets and tricks and really how to work. And, uh, and I, I think I, he said it or somebody told, he told somebody, they told me that they were really impressed with my trial to Scotty Flamingo, but that's about all the, you know, the 
back and forth there was. You know, so let me ask you this then. Going into back into WWF at that point, um, you know, so you, you leave WCW, you go back to UCW for a little bit, but then eventually WWF. Here's something that I, I thought was really unique that they didn't do either of, which I thought would have been kind of cool. You know, number one, upon rejoining the WWF, um, was there any conversation at all with Vince or, or JR or whomever about you restarting the flock with WWF guys? And number two, was there any conversation at all about you actually joining Right to Censor and you reporting to Stevie Richards in a kind of a mock reversal of, of, of years past of him reporting to you? I would have hated the, the being a Right to Censor guy. I would have, that would have destroyed me emotionally. Okay. Um, because, because it's so anti the character. Oh yeah, exactly. Uh, right. But that just because something's a surprise or different doesn't mean it's good. Um, and so that would have, that would have destroyed me like more emotionally than what, than what, than, than what they were doing with me as it was. That being said, uh, no, they never brought up me getting a flock or anything like that. Um, they, I, I got a lot of heat when I was there the first time and, uh, behind the scenes, and uh, so I wasn't I wasn't so the most popular guy coming in uh, with the office, you know, and then I wasn't and because I wasn't being used well, I became shitty, to, shitty to be around and then thus becoming even less popular to, you know, even un, more unpopular being or to be around publicly, you know, I mean, in front of the scenes, behind the scenes. And it was just it was a rotten period of my life. But and the good news is it's I, because of it, I went to a shrink and a psychologist. And uh, and learn to deal with my issues, and uh, and so if it wouldn't have happened that way, I probably wouldn't have, you know, I probably wouldn't have gotten clean. I probably wouldn't have, because you know, I got clean before I came in, because I knew I had to, because my uh, addiction was uh, becoming too well known, and um, and so I got clean beforehand. And when I saw, I started seeing a therapist and dealt with my issues, I became a much more happy person, you know, like. Instead of somebody, instead of the kind, instead of the clown, the clown who's crying behind on the inside, mm-hmm. which is what I was, you know, I was now a clown on the inside and the outside. You know, not a clown, but you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yes, no doubt about it. That's that's the one thing that's the people don't the, the people see the Raven character and then they go and but then they find out I'm funny. They, that's surprising. But I was a clown who was crying on the inside. You know, your your match at WrestleMania 17, was actually extremely physical. It was with Kane and Big Show at the Houston Astrodome, a Falls Count Anywhere match where you guys battled all over the building. And again, I'm not going to go back into the whole deal of, you know, the stuff scripted. I get all that. But you still had to take a physical toll on your body to do some of the spots that you guys did. You know, you're in there with really probably the two physically biggest guys in the company on the biggest stage, WrestleMania, with Kane and Big Show. What was that like? What are some of your memories of, of working with those two big names? You know, both two former world champions. Was was there some pride in that? Yeah, I, I mean, I thought and I thought we had a really good match too. You know, there were some fuck ups in it here and there, but but as a whole, the match was was really really good. Um, and uh, and I love the plate glass window spot. That was awesome. Absolutely. You know, so uh, but I don't think like the only reason that they wrote that that they wrote in so many cool spots. Was because uh, Big Show and Kane, and mainly because Kane was in it. You know, they always protect Kane, and so Kane, if he's going to be in a big match at WrestleMania, it's got to have some cool spots. So I was lucky to be a part of that and get to be in it. Because otherwise, like in the hardcore matches, I used to come up with all my own. You know, we come up with all our own creative spots. But like the golf carts and the plane glass window and all that, they came up with that. The office did, um, because you know they wanted some cool shit for those guys, and I just happened to be the vehicle for it so i gotta ask you you know about period saturn then because a little bit of your run there you know back and forth with period saturn do you kind of feel like the WWE kind of screwed him up a little bit as well his gimmick his character just because he you know he's your former army ranger coming into wcw and ecw and i really think they used them they used them great both times i even think wcw did a hell of a job with them quite frankly but to me wwe just really never seemed to know what to do with period saturn why do you think that was they just, I don't know, there's a lot of reasons. It's its just, they they like to come up with the talent themselves. They don't like to, they, don't, they like to, you know, they don't like to reuse other people, other companies' talents, so to speak. You know what I mean? 
And I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't know. I mean, they, they didn't use hardly anybody like, you know, there wasn't other than RVD. Um, really, they used nobody. Uh, none of us who were former WCW, ECW guys, you know? Yeah, no doubt about it. And the, the one question I always ask, you know, anybody who wrestled for ECW, I asked Estelle Snow and, uh, you know, Fonzie and, and anybody on the show who has any ECW roots, you know, looking back at it now, and and correct me if I'm wrong, you might have been with TNA at this point. I, I really, truly don't remember off the top of my head. But when in, in, in 2006, when the WWF, or excuse me, WWE, tried to do this uh, ECW, this new angle with ECW on sci-fi, it was one of the worst things a lot of us have ever seen. Why do you think that Vince McMahon brought it back just to kind of flatline it? That, that's exactly why he brought it back. Um, he hated the people chanted ECW at his shows, and uh, and he believed that you know he's the he's in charge. He's going to control the audience. He he knew if he brought it back and he and he and he made it like shit, then the audience would hopefully the audience would stop chanting ECW, and then he would have it. That's which is what he basically his goal was, as far as I can gather. You know, was it was supposed to be intentionally bad so that the ECW chants would stop. But all it did was make people miss EC, the real ECW more. Is that is that the favorite promotion you've ever worked with? Is ECW? That in Portland. Very cool. So, last question for you here. You know, as I started at the beginning of the interview, and I and I said this, and I truly mean this because I'm not a bullshitter. And if I say something, I really do mean it. To me, when you look at your entire career and everything you did, okay, a lot of it is intelligence. Obviously, there's the physical nature, there's the look, there's all that. But you always had that intelligence. You had that vision for what the fans wanted, whether they were going to cheer it or they were going to boo it. You had that vision. So now here we are, years later, there's a promotion, AEW. They're doing pretty well. A lot of people see them as, as a competitor. No one's ever going to put out the WWE. No one. But still, companies could compete and do well against them. If a situation ever arose for you to not compete for them, but to write for them, be on their creative team for AEW, is that something you would consider? Absolutely, yeah. Um, um, they know I'm interested, but right now they, uh, I, I think, um, I think they have the, the what they want is they don't want writers. You know, Tony Khan, I, I think, and Cody, and mostly do all the TV, and and I'm sure Jericho has his say, and the Bucks have their say, and all that. But you know, I don't think they want to start building a committee or a group. You know, but yeah, absolutely, I'd love to work for them. Yeah, I really admire them. I, you know. I really, I really like the product. You know, you and Jericho are close in age. Are you? Because I'm not surprised at all. I mean, is it just fascinating what he's able to do at his age and and just continue to perform and and people love him the way they do? Yeah, absolutely. He's he's got that Canadian super strength. I mean, he's <laughs> he's, that, he's uh, like that that Canadian superhuman. Like you know, you know, doesn't get injured, never has any injuries. You know, only injured himself like once uh, in his whole career. Um, he just, he doesn't get hurt. You know, he just, he just, it's unbelievable. He's just genetic. He's genetically gifted. Well, man, I appreciate you taking the time, uh, to speak with us today. Uh, you know, really do appreciate that. And, uh, is there any last things you want to plug as far as website goes, social media follows? How can our fans learn more about you and your product? Um, they can listen to my podcast, the Raven effect podcast. So on every most, uh, comes out every Monday. Um, on all the podcast, you know, outlets, um, other than Spotify, I think, I think they only play old ones in that if they play them at all. Um, and, uh, and I tweeted the Raven effect. Um, and, uh, that's about all I do with social media. I'm more like an unsocial media kind of person. Like, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I, I just I'm not a big fan of it, but you know, but I put a tweet out every day just because to keep a presence. Cause you gotta, have a, you, know, you have to keep a presence online. But, um, you know, uh, and as far and as far as everything else, I'm just basically riding out the COVID ride, you know? So. Yeah. Well, hey, can I tell you a little secret about social media? Mm-hmm. Right now, it's so full of shit that you're not missing anything. You look on social media and everybody's either a COVID-19 expert, a Black Lives Matter expert, or something. Like, everybody, and I'm not knocking that, trust me. But everybody, it's like, everybody's taking social media as their political platform. I, if it wasn't for my company, I would, I would literally delete my Facebook because it's just, it's brutal right now. People, I've never seen it like this where everybody's just at each other's throats. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's basically, I always tell people, like, you know, they go, this is big on the internet. I go, well, if it's big on the internet, it doesn't really mean anything. Like, you know, like, you know, wrestling fans on the internet all want this, so we should do that. So the company should do that. But really, it's a small percentage that, like, most people don't realize, like, you're only catering to a small percentage of the audience, and you're you're catering to the, to the, to the, to the, to the audience that's the most that's so um, addicted to your product that they'll follow it no matter what you do. So if you, but if you cater to them, you're also catering to the extremes, you know, and that's not the, it's not the casual audience that you really need to hit to be profitable. Well, no. And the abundance is out of this world of even things like, you know, um, uh, the uh, network. Okay. For example, like the WWE network, it's great. I mean, I literally today was just watching one of your matches against DDP you know, to get ready for this interview, kind of get pumped up for it. But, you know what I mean? Like, it, sometimes it's too much. It, it used to be special when wrestling was on one night a week. You had Monday Night Wrestling, and that was the ticket. That was the thing. And then, you, obviously, you had the competitor, so, it was, you know, two at one was still great. But right now, there's such an abundance of it that I think fans are going to burn out. I mean, is that something that you think was maybe more special in the 90s? you know, when you were super, super relevant and people were, they wouldn't miss Monday Night Raw or they wouldn't miss Monday Night Nitro. Or for people like me, you know, I had to stay up till the one in the morning just to watch a replay of ECW. You know, do you feel like right now it's just too much of it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, it's, everything's up. Right now, because of COVID, it's, everything's uh, in transition, you know. Like, I would have thought that it would have got bigger during the COVID because there's, not, there's no other new product out. But it, it's gotten – the ratings have gone down across the board. So, um, so yeah, definitely I think there's – there's it's always been too much wrestling on TV, always. Even back, back then there was too much wrestling on TV. Um, so – but how do you fix the business? That's a whole long subject. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not asking you that, man. I pre- You've already done enough today. Thank you so much uh, coming on the show. We do appreciate it. I'll make sure I get this out here, uh, you know, tweet it out and everything, you know, probably in the next 24 hours or whatnot. And I got to tell you on a personal note, man, we have had several guests put you over. I just want you to know that. Scott Hudson, Fonzie, uh, uh, Terry Runnels. There's been quite a few who have totally put you over. So I just, you know, just take some pride in that. You you were definitely respected by your peers. I know you've called yourself a bit of an asshole a few times here, but you know, looking back on it, a lot of people loved you. Thank you. Uh, who else? Did you, who did you say? You said Fonzie, Fonzie, Terry, um, and um, Scott Hudson. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. As a, it's always be good. It's always good to be respected by your peers. You know, I've always said that the greatest compliment you could pay me as a fan is that uh, is is a fan is. Well, okay. There, I actually have two definitions. One is, as a, if uh, if somebody got into the business because of me, that's as great a compliment as you can get from another wrestler. Is that somebody is that they got into the business because of you, which I've heard from a few people, which really means everything. And the uh, and the best compliments I've ever got from just fans, not fans who became wrestlers, is is that uh, is Raven really that big an asshole? Because you know whether I was or wasn't it had nothing to do with it. The character they think the character's that big an ass. Like if they built if they bought the character as you know, like, you know, I wasn't a true asshole, but, but, you know, I always go, I always say that to, you know, self deprecatingly because I was to an extent, but, but the people when they, they don't know that. So when they ask, you know, like other wrestlers, they go, is Raven really that big an asshole? That just means that the, that the character is, is so believable that they think it carries over to real life. And that's a, that's a huge compliment too. Uh, absolutely. Well, I, you know, thank you again, man. Truly appreciate it. One last compliment for you, then I promise I'll stop kissing your ass. I got to, <laughs> I got to tell you, Johnny Polo to me, because I was a young kid, not to make you feel old, because I'm, I'm 38. But Johnny Polo, man, I f- just freaking love that character. Loved it. I thought you were tremendous as Johnny Polo. So I just wanted to tell you that. You know, a lot of people think I hated it, and it's not that I hated it. It's just I didn't want to do it. But I mean. But I'm really proud of the work I did. Like I thought, I thought some of the stuff I did was hilarious, you know. Yeah. And I thought, you know, but I, and I brought cleverness and creativity, you know, which are two most important things you can have um, to bring to a to a project. So I'm, you know, so as much as as much as it was an albatross to get rid of it after I became Raven, because you know, which is part of the reason Raven not only was a tough guy, but he was inhumanly tough. 
was because he had to overcome the albatross of being Johnny Polo. But by the same token, you know, I'm very proud of the work I did with it, you know? Yeah, I mean, hey, no doubt about it. We saw Johnny Polo take Tommy Dreamer's girlfriend. That's kind of what it turned out to be. So definitely... uh... My proudest moment is Johnny Polo was was working a match with Virgil and getting the fans to chant, go Virgil, go. (laughs) We're still trying to get him on the show. He's one of the few guys that we've gone back and forth. I I don't want to put him on the spot, but there's two two guests. I mean, we've had just about everybody. We've had a real, real good run of guests. But him and uh, I don't know if you remember this guy. I think real name, I think it's Kevin Kelly. No, Kevin Walkitz. And uh, he went by Nails. Yeah, yeah, I know. I don't know him. Yeah, I, no, no luck so far. We're we're working on it, but honestly, thank you again for your time. Uh, we'll check back with you always, and uh, hopefully to talk to you soon. And, and stay safe during this whole COVID nineteen craziness. You too, man. And thanks. It was a you um you're a really good host, and uh, and you said some amazingly complimentary things to me. So thank you. Hey, no problem at all. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great day. All right. Bye bye. So that will do it today on the show. Key on sports. Want to thank our guest Scott Levy better known as Raven. Uh, just unbelievable. Unbelievable is all I could say. I was a huge fan of his career. Um, you know, and, and, and like I tell you guys all the time, it's as a journalist nowadays, you know, you, you have, I'm at that age where I've talked to my sports heroes, you know, Jim Tomey, Kenny Lofton, um, Carlos Baerga, you know what I mean? I've talked to every sport you can think of, boxing, baseball, football, all these guys I grew up watching, and here we are now, and women too, a few women, but, you know, now we got our, our wrestling stuff going on because, as Scott said there, you know, the sports world up until, like, last week with baseball, it's been done. All, all we've had is WWF, uh, AEW, and um, UFC. So, you know, having all these guys on there, these MMA guys, these WWF guys, WCW guys, ECW, it's been great because here I am now as a journalist getting to put my fanboy hat on for a little bit as well and talk about some of the memories I had as a fan and uh, that's something I always do. You know, like we said, we like to keep this podcast 100% legit. I'm never going to try to be more than I am. I'm never going to try to act like I'm an expert on something. You know, deep down inside, I'm a fan. I still watch. You know, that fandom never goes away. So getting to talk with guys like this is, is just huge, you know, and, and just tremendous, tremendous stuff. Um, you know, one for almost an hour there. So I, had, I could ask him another 20 questions easily. But... Guys, listen, everybody hang in there. I know a lot of people right now are crapping their pants. What are you going to do about school? Where are you going to send your kids? It is nuts out there. So just sit tight. One of these days, things will get back to normal. All right, we'll get there. Everybody, if you have any issues, let me know. Tweet at me, you know, at sports underscore key. Email me, coachvin14 at yahoo.com. And we will talk to everybody soon. Good night.